This is Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat. Good day to all of you. I'm Ido Aharoni, your host. You are with Tau Unbound, and uh, we are very, very happy to have with us Professor Bouya Adini. Good morning, and thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for being here. Bouya Adini, those of you who don't know, she's the head of the department in charge of emergency and disaster management within the School for Public Health at Tel Aviv University. So before we go into the heavy subject of disaster and emergency, tell us a little bit about your academic background. Uh, how did you get to, um, to deal with those issues? Well, actually, my academic background is built on uh, a lot of experience from the field. I started from many years in the uh, uh, medical corps of the Israeli Defense Force. I was, uh, at first, uh, I started as a mental health officer. And then, very quickly, I understood that I wanted not only to focus on each individual, but actually on the systemic response. And so, I went into uh, disaster management because the medical force actually also uh, assisted the uh, civilian medical health care system in Israel right and, and this that's is how it started and this is also um, a good um, a good um, point in the interview to mention to our viewers and our listeners that in Israel because of the centrality of the military the military also assumes civilian duties in the area of disaster and emergency and Management and preparedness. And you, if I'm not mistaken, you served 17 years in the IDF? Yes. Um, I was in charge at the end uh, uh, on the preparedness of the Israeli uh, hospital system for emergencies. And this is a civilian system. We don't have military hospitals in Israel. So it's not only the centrality of the military, it's also the fact that we have limited resources. And so we work together, civilians and military. And would you say that because the military um, has, it's the largest organization in the country, uh, certainly has the largest budget in the country, um, would you say that this is perhaps the main reason why we see the Israeli Defense Forces in, engaged even in international aid programs for managing disaster like we've had in Turkey, Ukraine, uh, and other places? I think in the last decades we've learned worldwide that militaries are um, huge logistic systems so they have medical uh, response they have uh, the ability to bring transportation uh, communications and so on so they can very much uh, uh, be of value in any place where you need these logistic assistance and so the utilization in order to respond to uh, public needs is something that is crucial in In any place where there is a disaster because the element of disaster is that you don't have enough resources to respond uh, to the different needs now your PhD you obtained it while serving in the army uh, no After. I actually my master's I obtained while I was uh, in the military and then I continued to work in the Ministry of Health and you know many of the the um, 
officers in the medical corps later on became very senior personnel in the academia, in the Ministry of Health, and so on. And some of them came to me and said, well, why don't you uh, uh, proceed with uh, academic studies? Because what you're doing in the Ministry of Health is something which is very relevant and has to do with research, uh, which is the scientific uh, arena. And at some point of time, they said, you know, the right thing at the right time. And I did my PhD. And it was about what? It was about uh, how we can actually assess the level of preparedness of the healthcare systems for emergencies. It's a, a wonderful question. <laughs> but before that, how do we measure, you know, we can understand the health of an individual. How do we measure the health of the public? And how do we measure preparedness? Well, there are two different things which are, of course, very much uh, connected. The health of the population, or in another word, the resilience, the ability to adapt to any type of adversity and be able to function uh, is something that has been uh, uh, studied in the past uh, 30 or 40 years uh, with many researchers developing different types of indicators. For example, the social solidarity, uh, our trust in ourselves, in others, in our governance systems, our connectivity to the state. All of these different elements uh, actually show us whether the public and the population at large is or is not uh, uh, able and capable of dealing with any type of, of uh, emergency that might occur because many are sudden, you don't know when and where it will happen. But measuring it before, during and after each adversity has taught us to actually be able to very accurately assess the level, for example, of individual, community, or societal resilience. And when we talk about um, preparedness for emergency, and especially in a disaster situation, um, which obviously um, we're very limited in our predictability. Right. Um, so what would you say are the main threats uh, Israel is facing. Um, and of course, I'm setting aside the whole issue of pandemics. We'll talk about the pandemic in a second. But right now, to the extent we can predict, what are the main issues? Well, you know, adversities are very, very diverse. We have some that are uh, driven by natural occurrences. For example, one threat in Israel is an earthquake. Now, it doesn't happen very frequently. Statistically, in Israel, it's every 100 years. But when it occurs, and we are nearing, because statistically, the severe one was about uh, 80 years ago in 1927, you need to be prepared because if you do not, the houses, for example, will collapse on the people situated in them, and that will be a, a very severe uh, um, adversity. So that's one element, uh, nature-driven types of, of uh, adversities. Another is human-made. It can be due to negligence or accidents or conflicts and war, either internal ones or external. So in Israel, we have both. And as you mentioned, also the pandemics, which in the past three years, all of us has been exposed to this global uh, threat that impacts all of our lives. Now, the average Israeli uh, doesn't have the bandwidth, if you may, to think about those issues. But you mentioned earthquakes. And we know we're along the Syrian-African fault. Uh, and we do know that historically, the cities of Tzafat and Tiberias and Bechan and you know, they suffered greatly throughout history because of earthquakes. Um, is there any strategy put in place to tackle this, 
to prepare. I know that Tama um, 38, which is the reconstruction plan for old buildings, was put in place to tackle this issue, but it was strangely implemented mostly in the Tel Aviv area and the Jerusalem area, not so much in the, you know, in those places. Uh, what can you tell us about the strategy that was developed to tackle the issue of earthquakes? Well, first of all, what we have to uh, understand is that you always have to prioritize to what uh, adversity you're preparing to and where are you going to put more or less resources. So for many years, because of the terror that we had to face because of different types of conflicts and war, we put much more emphasis on being prepared for that and less on earthquakes. Because of the psychological impact. Not only the psychological. When you have, uh, for example, the need to um, give a response to missiles, that are uh, being launched against civilian populations, you put a lot of resources, for example, in Iron Dome, okay? That right. gives the population um, some degree, a great degree of safety, as well as resilience. Uh, again, it goes together. When you want to be prepared for earthquakes, one of the major elements we need to prepare for is what you said, strengthening of the buildings. Now, you can do that, and it has been done since the 1990s, changing the building codes and make them more resilient to earthquake. But that only applies to new buildings. What do you do with the majority of buildings that were built before that? And we know from earthquakes worldwide that what kills people are the collapse of buildings. It's not the earth opening its, you know, uh, its, its mountains or, or valleys and people falling in. It's the building falling on those population. So to do that, which is very logical, you need a lot of resources. Tama 38, it's not a bad idea. The reason it only was uh, actually practical in the central part of the country is because it's a collaboration between private and public entities. It's actually, you give the ability to builders to have additional floors uh, in order to strengthen all the floors in the building. So where would they go and build? Where there's a lot of uh, um, requests to buy houses. Right. So what, what I'm hearing from you between the lines is that in Israel, and I would assume that in other places too, um, the urgent always overrides the important. Um, because you mentioned terrorism. Terrorism never posed an existential threat to the state of Israel, even when, when buses were exploding. Uh, yet a ma major massive earthquake could result in, in tens of thousands of people dying. And so, you know, the question is why the system is unable to produce a strategy to tackle this, an effective strategy. Because it's much more complicated than that. It's not a dichotomy of, of yes or no to each one. And there's always, you know, a budget that is limited. Now, it's all, not only comparison of the adversities one to another. It's also actually um, comparison to what we need in routine. For example, if I come from the healthcare systems, uh, putting the uh, or uh, expanding the basket of services, the new technologies for people that have uh, cancer or for children that now uh, we were discussing uh, uh, new immunizations and so on. So when you have a, a limited budget, you have to, to uh, decide, are you going to give it to the education system? Are you going to give it to the health system? Are you going to give it to the security and, and the Ministry of Defense and so on? Which which brings a wonderful question. You know, one of the we live in the age of information overload. There's too much information and our, the human brain was never designed to handle 
this volume of information. As a result, uh, people are looking for simple solutions. And as a result, conversation lost its nuance, right? People, it's very difficult for them to understand complexity. They're not even interested in hearing about it. Would you say that the initial response of governments to the pandemic, to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, lacked nuance? I think it lacked many things. At first, because of it was an emerging threat, we didn't know. We knew pandemics, okay? We've had them in history. Uh, we even had in Israel uh, a plan that was constructed in 2007, what to do in pandemics. It wasn't for the coronavirus, but it doesn't matter what the agent is. The principles were the same. So I think in the beginning, it, it was okay to decide things such as the lockdown, for example, to make sure that people do not uh, come uh, in direct contact with each other so that they can be safety. That was fine. But we should have looked at the evidence base very quickly. For example, throughout the pandemic, the main risk communication tactic was fear. Do you remember in March 2020, uh, the prime minister said by uh, by Passover, which is a month later, 10,000 people are going to die in Israel. Okay? He said it because we didn't know. But by April, by Pesach, there was 200 people who died. So it was a great discrepancy, which is fine if we had come to the population and said, listen, we didn't know it then. We know now more. We're changing from fear tactics to something else. Fear tactics is fine for a very short period of time. People are afraid and they do what they say. But when they see that the reality is different, they change and the compliance reduces. If we had then recruited the public as a partner and not as an enemy, the, the public was, what we heard was the public does not adhere. The public doesn't do what we say. The public is, is causing this and this is why we're going to put the green tag and the ones that do not later on, do not take the vaccinations, will not be able to come to school or go to the mall and so on. That's not and by the, way, the public a partner. Right. And by the way, here, you know, I, I had, I, I spent time in both New York and, and uh, Jerusalem during the pandemic. And uh, during the first lockdown, I was here. And, um, and I remember, the, so I had the perspective of seeing how cultural differences play a role. In Israel, my impression was that it was the Israeli public that decided de facto that the lockdown is over. It wasn't the Israeli government. In New York, it was entirely different. People are far more disciplined than here. I remember right after Passover, people just started going out. Enough is enough, you know, and it's a cultural thing. And uh, But I, I, totally, I totally understand what, what you're talking about. Do we have information about the impact of the lockdown on, on populations worldwide or specifically here in Israel? There's a lot of studies that have been made on the lockdown. In Israel, we had three very long ones. We have information from studies here. We have it from uh, overseas. We see many adverse uh, um, repercussions w such as obesity, yeah. obesity. Obesity. We wow. see a problem what we called uh, the lost generation, children who don't have enough uh, social skills, who are unable to uh, maintain uh, effective communications with others that have a lot of uh, depressive uh, uh, symptoms and so on. We see 
uh, even now, uh, a lot of medical studies are coming out to see what were the repercussions of people being afraid to go to the hospital because... A hospital is where you may, um, you know, uh, be in contact with other COVID patients. But what about the ones who needed to be diagnosed for cancer, for uh, strokes and so on? People were afraid of seeking help. So these studies now are emerging more and more, both concerning the vaccinations and concerning the COVID uh, uh, itself. Uh, the problem is what you stated before. How much do we um, spend time to read the data? to understand it, to act accordingly. And I have to say that concerning the COVID worldwide, not only in Israel, it's not only the public, it's also how the healthcare system at large is open enough to, um, to think maybe we were wrong in some of the measures that we had adopted. Um, you mentioned uh, some of the um, points that are emerging from the studies, and I would assume that loneliness among, especially among the elderly, is also becoming a, a problem post-COVID-19. People that were lonely and uh, they couldn't be with their families, with their children, with their grandchildren. Loneliness is a lethal uh, situation, no doubt. But I want to relate to something that you actually um, are implying in what you're saying, uh, loneliness, elderly, and so on. One of the things that uh, uh, we learned in COVID, and not only that, it's much wider than that, you need to have uh, the science with the practice together. Why? For example, we know that elderly are more susceptible, can have a, a more severe disease uh, of COVID. But does that make them a more um, vulnerable populations concerning the resilience, for example, when we checked it and we did uh, the studies throughout the COVID, what we learned is that the elderly, 61 and older, are actually have higher resilience and less distress and anxiety symptoms compared to the younger, which are 31 to 40 years old. And we ask ourselves, why is that? Why do we see the, the younger ones, which are the backbone of society, why are they more depressed? Why are they having a, a much uh, um, higher decrease in their resilience? And what we understood is that these are the people, they have children at school which didn't have schools, and they had to deal with it. They were the ones that are the backbone of the economic systems and they, they couldn't go to work. They didn't know if they'll have a work to go back to. They didn't know what collapse, what financial repercussion they'll suffer as families. That's what caused their uh, heightened anxiety and depressive uh, assistance. We got to the point where uh, uh, during uh, the height of the uh, pandemic, because of this uncertainty and not knowing how the state will actually protect me, not health-wise. They were much more worried concerning the political instability and the uh, economical instability. And 30% of them showed high symptoms of anxiety, which is a very high level. Now, what you're saying about uh, the older population being more resilient is counterintuitive. And I think that didn't get much play in, in, in world media. I didn't read about it. And it's the first time I hear about it is now. Well, I think it's fascinating. It's it fascinating. It is fascinating, and we learned many um, such elements uh, concerning different sectors in the population, which again stresses how important it is to have a, a joint collaboration of, of scientists, researchers, practitioners, and policymakers. Talking about collaboration, so Tel Aviv University is perhaps one of the most cosmopolitan institutions we have in the country. What other countries or universities you worked with during the pandemic to, to learn about 
what happened to populations? Well, what we did, actually, we... Uh, Throughout the pandemic, we established here in Tel Aviv uh, a multinational uh, research collaboration on resilience and well-being of populations. We have over 50 researchers from different, from over 20 countries, and we're studying this together in order to understand the commonalities and the diversity. For example, how uh, the population uh, reacts here in Israel compared to what is happening in the United States, the Philippines, Brazil, uh, different countries. We do the same uh, with the Ukrainian uh, war. We understood that this is a global impact. It's not just Russia and Ukraine. And not only because of the displaced populations that actually fled to uh, neighboring countries, also economically, politically, and so on. So we we um, have this collaboration within this research collaboration. We call it ResWell because of resilience and, and wellness. And we study together the resilience, for example, in Ukraine versus all other um, Eastern European countries. So, for example, what we studied, which was a surprise to us, that um, the societal resilience of the Ukrainians is the highest among all the countries, including we actually even compared it to Israel in another conflict time in Israel, which was a guardian of the walls in May 21. And we saw that their societal resilience is much higher compared to all other countries like Poland, like Estonia, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and so on. Um, what we understood is that you can have a very high level of, of distress, of uh, um, sense of danger, of fear of what is happening, a low morale. But at the same time, if you have high hope, which is what we found among the Ukrainians, and a very high support of your government, that impacts and they have such a high level of societal resilience, which enables them as a society to be cohesive and actually adapt to the horrific conditions under which they live. They believe that tomorrow will be better than the present. Then, and that's also, I think, um, we have many historical precedents. Uh, for example, the British during World War II, and and so on. And certainly, the story of our people of the of the state of Israel is a story of of resilience above all. In my in my view, let me uh, shift the conversation to something else that is less talked about in Israel. But I know, again, as someone who spends a lot of time overseas, it's the number one issue in the world, and of course, is climate change and um, risks associated with climate change. And so what what do we know about the kind of climate risks that we are facing here in Israel? Well, we will face uh, similar elements that we see in other countries. A spike in the temperatures. We think uh, we are used to, you know, heat waves and so on. So it doesn't impact us as it does other countries, which is true. But when the temperature rise, uh, even in, in one of two degrees over a period of time, it impacts so many things in the society, the health of the people, the agriculture, the ability to actually uh, depend on different systems which are impacted. The same with uh, um, uh, cold waves. Again, these elements are uh, elements that impact on each and every one of us. We, we keep thinking, well, it's not really relevant to us. What will happen if there's a, a rise in one uh, degree of temperature? But think of yourself. When usually we have 37%, uh, 37 degree of a temperature and we function fine. But when it comes to 38 or 39, 
we're incapacitated. We cannot go to work. We cannot uh, uh, maintain uh, a close communication with others and so on. That's also what happens to the environment. This is why it's so uh, uh, crucial. And I have to tell you, again, another assumption is that people don't care about climate change. It seems far away from them and so on. So, for example, in one of the um, studies that we have done, uh, we, we measure over time, every uh, three to four months, uh, the levels of resilience and, and the perceived risk and, and threats and so on in the population. Climate change was very, very low for many years. But the last time we, we uh, actually uh, measured it, it became the number three threat that is perceived by the population. And I'm not even talking about the policymakers, uh, the population. So it's getting to be higher and higher. The health risk in comparison was much more lower. Yeah, I, I by the way, I, as a diplomat, I can tell you that I was always baffled by this huge gap between the level of concern, not to say anxiety, that I sensed among the general public in the United States here, and the complete, you know, ob the decision makers, policy makers are were completely oblivious. I remember when I left New York 2016, the, the climate summit took place in the United Nations, and 175 heads of nations came and um, President Obama opened the summit. Um, the Israeli delegation, last minute, the Minister of the Environment decided to come, not to mention the Prime Minister, didn't even think about coming. Uh, but the Minister of the Environment came last minute, and uh, we were underrepresented, and, um, and I was embarrassed as an Israeli diplomat. I was embarrassed that this is not, and, and even now we had five election cycles, uh, climate change was not on the agenda, and uh, and I think it's a it's a big um, it's a big problem, and it has to be fixed. You're right, but awareness is changing. When you look at the last summit that was just a few uh, uh, months ago uh, in Egypt, you saw not only a large political representations, but also many Israeli NGOs. Uh, industrial representatives and so on. So you see by this high participation that things are changing. And it has to do with the overall awareness. It starts with the public. Now, you are, you have a very unique perspective. You were in the army, which is, as we mentioned, is really the backbone of Israeli preparedness. You were in the Minister of Health. You're in the academic world. I'd like to ask you something from 30 feet above. What would you like to see happening in Israel in terms of preparedness for emergency and disaster um, that in the future that is not happening now? I think there, concerning uh, disaster management, there are three very important things. And if we maintain those three, we'll be um, maintaining a high level of preparedness for anything. The first is you need to have um, the ability to have the situation awareness, to build, uh, to understand and assess the needs, the changing needs. To do that, you need information that starts in the field by the public and so on. So we see the, the vital um, presence of the public with the ones, the responders, the policymakers and so on. So uh, we see in the first element of building the situation awareness, the public is crucial. The second step is working together, 
okay? Having a, a joint language, and not a Hebrew, English, Arabic, uh, Ethiopian, but a language of disaster preparedness. Again, the ministries, the responders cannot do so alone. If they actually look at the population as a resource, we'll be in a much better position because when they relay instructions or directives, there'll be the responders that will understand and the population that is there uh, uh, to understand. And the third element is uh, uh, to be able um, to actually put a priority, uh, uh, the correct priority of utilization of the resources. Again, the public is a resource. It's not the problem. So you can see in all three elements of disaster management, I highlight the importance of utilizations and involving the, the population as a real partner, starting from risk awareness, risk management, response to emergencies, and reconstruction and rehabilitation after something happens. So if we put our stocks in that I think we'll be much more successful, much more effective in all our uh, response to any type of adversity. It makes perfect sense. And you, you've you been able to articulate this so clearly. I'd like to thank you for that. You know, uh, I could I could spend a lot more time with you discussing this, this issue. Professor Adini, thank you so much for being here. Our time is up. Thank you for educating us. Thank you for conveying the message so clearly. Uh, you you really have a gift to put those things in, in clear terms. And to those of us who are listening to us on the podcast, watching us on YouTube, goodbye from Tel Aviv until the next episode. Thank you so much, Professor Dini. Thank you very much. May we all have resilient and safe societies. Thank you.